Welcome to the teaching ministry of Calvary Port St. Lucie. Let's join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, The Grace of Giving. Amen. Well, if you've been with us since May, then you know that the church at Corinth started in just an amazing way. Their founding pastor was the Apostle Paul himself. And you remember uh, in Acts chapter 18, it talks about how Paul went to Corinth, how he started that church, and then he remained there for a year and a half. And it says in Acts 18 that he stayed there for a year and a half, listen to this, teaching them the word of God. I mean, how awesome is that? How incredible would it be to have the Apostle Paul as your pastor? How incredible would it be to sit at the feet of Paul and to hear him be able to explain the scriptures line upon line and precept upon precept? That was the blessing in Corinth. That's the blessing of those people who went to that church. So it started off great. But how many of you guys know that great beginnings do not guarantee great endings? Right? Just because a church starts off great doesn't mean that it's going to end great. If you want proof of that, just sometime this week, read Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter two and three. And you'll see that a lot of those churches start off great. They didn't end so great. And so the jury's out for the church of Corinth. And about two and a half years after Paul left Corinth, okay, so he was there for a year and a half, he taught them the word of God. He moved on in order to plant other churches around the Roman Empire. And two and a half years after moving on, Paul's in Ephesus. He's enjoying a great time of ministry there. And he receives a discouraging message from Corinth. It turned out that the church of Corinth had taken a turn for the worse for those two and a half years after Paul left. And now they were dealing with all these problems and we've been looking at these problems, right? If you've been with us since May, we saw lots of problems in the first eight chapters of the letter. We're going to see a lot more problems in the second half of the letter as we make our way through. But something else happened as the Apostle Paul was away from Corinth. It seems like the tide of opinion toward Paul had changed since he left that church. And now in the church, there were people who were openly criticizing the Apostle Paul. They said things like, you know, his letters are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is contemptible. You remember the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, they're really big on oratory and philosophical debate. And so apparently the Apostle Paul's public speaking wasn't up to their par. And so they began to openly criticize him and they went so far as to question whether he was called as an apostle. So that's where we're going to pick it up today in chapter 9, verse 1. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? Have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? We're going to see a little later on that that's one of the qualifications of an apostle. We get that from Acts chapter 1. I'll explain that later, but he says, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Verse two, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So Paul talks a lot about 
being an apostle. He's defending the fact that he was an apostle. And I wanted to define the term for you biblically. An apostle simply is a delegate, a messenger, one sent forth with orders. The apostles were those who were commissioned by Christ. They were chosen by Christ, right? He said to them, you did not choose me, I chose you. And ordained that you go, bear, go and bear fruit. And so an apostle were, were, were those guys who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to go out and to spread his message of redemption uh, to the world. And we know, of course, the original 12 apostles. Maybe some of you who went to Christian school, you had to memorize their names. So it's Peter and James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, Judas, the son of James, and of course, the infamous Judas Iscariot. Now, I hope everybody understands um, that Judas Iscariot was a spiritual fraud. He knew about God. He didn't know God. He was with Jesus the better part of three years, but he didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah of Israel. The guy never got saved. Judas Iscariot. And by the way, isn't it interesting that on secular television a few months ago, they were making Judas out to be the hero of the Gospels. Leave it up to the secular world to get the story all wrong. Obviously, they don't believe this is God's word. And so Judas Iscariot was a spiritual fraud. He would, when no one's looking, he'd dip his hand into the, the, the money box and pat his own wallet with the money that people were giving to the, support the ministry of Jesus. Okay, and so that's why Judas had to be replaced by a disciple named Matthias. And you can read later about that in Acts chapter one. Okay, as you continue to read Acts, right, the history of the church, and you're going through Acts, you find out later that the Apostle Paul called another apostle. Of course, we know he's the author of this letter to the church of Corinth, and he wrote most of the New Testament, and his name is the Apostle Paul. What a big deal the Apostle Paul was and is today. Concerning the Apostle Paul, Jesus said this uh, to Ananias. He said, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine, to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so Jesus Christ had this huge plan for the Apostle Paul. And those plans, they included, you know, going on this uh, a missionary journey three times, uh, planting many churches, writing, as I said earlier, most of the New Testament. And so Paul was an apostle in the fullest sense of the word. And listen to this. Paul had as much apostolic authority as the original 12 apostles. Now, as you continue to read the New Testament, you see every once in a while, there's a few other guys that are called apostles or messengers, guys like Barnabas and Epaphroditus and James, Jesus' brother, but they were not among the original 12. And by the way, quick side note, when you read Revelation chapter 21, verse 14, you find out that someday the New Jerusalem, the wall of the New Jerusalem is going to be supported by 12 foundation stones. And on those 12 foundation stones will be the names of the apostles of the Lamb. And so the apostles were a big deal, especially the original 12 and especially the apostle Paul. 
Very important you get this, church family. So important as a New Testament church that we are. You got to understand, according to Ephesians 2.20, that the church, and that would include our church, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. By the way, where can you find the writings of the apostles and the prophets? It's called your New Testament. Please, everybody, say New Testament, okay? Very important. That's our guide. The Old Testament, too, right? Absolutely. But the New Testament gives further uh, instructions concerning uh, born-again believers that, that live in this age of grace. And so, New Testament, the writings of the apostles and prophets. Okay, if you're with me here, can you say amen? Don't miss this. When it comes to the Old Testament... And when it comes to the New Testament, you've got to understand that the canon of the scripture is closed. It's closed. So if anybody comes to you today and says they're receiving new revelation from God, if anyone comes to you today and they say that their teachings or their prophecies are as inspired as the Bible or as authoritative as the Bible, I have one word of warning for you. Guess what that word is? It's what? Run. And I want everybody to say run, okay? Say that because that's what you need to do if you're ever in the church of one of these jokers. And they, they, they began to hold their head and say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, uh-huh, Lord, yes, Lord. Okay, I have a word for the Lord, from the Lord here. And they put it up at, on the same level as the Bible? Give me a break. There is no new revelation from God. The canon's closed. We have everything we need as far as how to do church, as far as reveal truth. When people come on the scene, they say, they say, I have a new revelation from God. Here's what you know. That's scary. That could be a cult, right? It could be like um, the founder of Mormonism who said that the angel Moroni appeared to him and gave him another testament. The Book of Mormon. False. Heresy. Wrong. Don't buy into it. Okay, this is God's word. The canon is closed. He said, do not add to my words. Do not subtract from my word. Right? Right? Look at what Jude said. Jude said, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend. The word contend means to fight. Okay, if there's any area where the Christians got to stand and fight, it comes to protecting this book. Right, Because liberals, theological liberals, will say this is not God's word. And they'll begin to add all these other kind of man-made ideas. And then they put over the God's, God's word. No, 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 no. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to fight earnestly for the faith, which was, notice the tense here. Once for all delivered, past tense, to the saints. And so... The Christian faith is not still being delivered to the church, right? And so be very careful of modern-day so-called apostles who would try to add to the Christian faith. 
Be very careful about modern day so-called apostles who are trying to still lay a foundation for the Christian faith. You don't have to do that. The foundation has already been laid. The Christian faith has been fully revealed by the New Testament. Now, I understand that there are people today um, who have had apostolic-like ministries. The first guy that I thought of was Pastor Chuck Smith, who is now with the Lord. If you're new to Calvary Chapels, you, know, you need to know that Chuck Smith, God used him to start the very first Calvary Chapel in the late 60s. And this is the most humble man you could ever meet. I had the honor of having um, lunch with him with some other pastors one day, and I just could not believe how soft-spoken, how humble this guy was. And God used that man to influence thousands and thousands and thousands of people. He was not a showboat. He was just the opposite of a showboat. There was no pretense no guile going on in his heart and life. He didn't want the limelight. He was always pointing the glory back to God. And so God put him in a position where hundreds and hundreds of pastors were influenced by him. And they went out and started hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches, Calvary Chapel affiliated churches all around the world. And by the way, even though Chuck is in heaven, his influence still remains today nice and strong. Um, for just one example of many, Pastor Billy Almagir, who was on staff here at Calvary Poor St. Lucie, he preached two months ago. Um, he is in St. Augustine. He's starting Awaken City Church. He texted me last week. He was so excited because he went through the process and he is now a Calvary Chapel affiliated church. And so Chuck Smith's influence continuing beyond the grave. But here's my point. Pastor Chuck would never call himself an apostle. You say, why not? He was too humble for that. And also, he knew the qualifications of an apostle. Here's just two of them. The first qualification of an apostle is you have to have had seen the resurrected Christ. In Acts chapter 1, after Judas betrayed himself and went out and hung himself, right, they picked a 12th apostle to replace Judas. It was between a guy named Joseph and Matthias. But the requirement there in Acts chapter 1 is you've got to pick from a group of guys who have seen the resurrected Jesus. Matthias um, won the lot there. He was chosen as the 12th apostle. Another uh, qualification of an apostle, according to 2 Corinthians 12, 12, is these guys could perform signs and wonders and, and miracles. So Pastor Chuck knew that. He would never call himself an apostle. He knew his name is not on one of the 12 foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. And so I thank God for the influence of Pastor Chuck Smith in my own life. But I want you to be careful, church family. I'm your pastor. I'm your shepherd. I'm called by God to look out for your souls, okay? Be careful of modern day so-called apostles. Be very leery. Be very careful. And be careful about apostolic churches. Because a lot of those apostolic churches put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Have you noticed a lot of churches these days, they emphasize it's all about signs, miracles, and wonders, right? And they, they, they hit somebody on the head and the person falls over and they call that a sign, miracle, or wonder from God. Give me a break. 
That is not the focus of the church. The focus of the church is the apostles' doctrine, right? Acts 2.42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayers. They didn't go around hitting people and having people fall over. It's, it's nonsense today. Ladies and gentlemen, a lot of churches have become a circus today. And so I'm your pastor. I look out for your souls and I say, beware of those types of churches and beware when churches emphasize the wrong syllable. Paul saw the resurrected Christ. Paul performed authentic signs and wonders. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament, most of the New Testament. Therefore, he defended himself here in this portion of the letter. Let's pick it up now in verse three. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we have no right to eat and drink? Do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Wow. See, not only did the church at Corinth question whether Paul was an authentic apostle, they also didn't think that he should receive financial support for his ministry. They, they would say stuff like, Paul needs to go get a job. Paul needs to support himself. And that guy Barnabas, his partner, he needs to go get a job as well. And so Paul says to this church in verse 4, do we have no right to eat and drink? In other words, don't we have the right to receive financial support? He says in verse five, um, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? In other words, don't we have the right to receive financial support, not just for ourselves, but for our wives and for our families? He says in verse six, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? In other words, the other apostles receive financial support for themselves and their families. So why is it that Barnabas and I have to go out and get a job? So that leads you to your next point. If you're taking notes, God used Paul in a huge way. Yet sadly, most churches did not send him financial support. Now, I want you to hold your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'm going to take a quick look at Philippians chapter 4. Shoot on over to Philippians chapter 4 here. We're talking about how God used Paul in a huge way, yet most churches did not send him financial support for his ministry. Now, now Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, completely opposite of the church of Corinth. Philippi was an awesome, awesome group of believers. Paul says in verse 10, if you're looking at Philippians 4.10, just say amen so I know you're there. Here we go. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care but you lacked opportunity. So he's talking about how thankful he is for their financial support of his ministry in verse 10. 
He says in verse 11, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. He says, I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, to abound and suffer need. And then he says that famous verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's saying to the church at Philippi, when you guys send me financial support, man, I'm abounding, and, and, and that's great, but sometimes when I don't get any financial support, I'm abased, and I'm in need, but that's okay too, because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He says in verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. In other words, verse 14, you have done well that you sent financial support. He says, now you Philippians, Know also that in the beginning of the gospel, I departed from Macedonia. And now here it is, okay? Here's where I got the last point on the screen. He says, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Isn't that sad? We're talking about the Apostle Paul. We're talking about arguably the greatest Christian who ever lived in 2,000 years. And at least in the beginning of his ministry, most churches did not financially support him. The church of Philippi did over and over. In fact, it says in verse 16 that even in Thessalonica, you Philippians sent aid once and again for my necessities. And he didn't want anybody to misjudge his motives. And so he says, not that I seek the financial gift there in verse 17, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I'm full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Now stop right there and look at me, please. The Apostle Paul is saying here that the act of sending financial support, the act of giving to the ministry, the act of honoring God with your financial gift is a sweet smelling aroma to the nostrils of our uncreated holy God. And that is precisely why we make such a big deal about the offering here on Sunday morning. Because it's an act of worship. Whether you give online securely at our website during the week, or whether you give as the bucket goes by on Sunday morning, or whether you give by mailing in your envelope, however you give, you need to know when you give, it's a sweet smelling aroma to the Lord according to Philippians chapter four, verse 18. And in that context of them giving, in the context of them financially supporting the ministry, then Paul writes in verse 19, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But let me tell you something. Don't take that verse, verse 19, because it's a popular verse. Don't take that verse out of context and claim it for yourself if you're not giving. If you haven't given, if you're not financially giving, you have to leave that verse alone. Because we don't take verses out of context. We leave them in the context. And in the context is people who put God first in their finances and they give their financial support to the work of the ministry. And then God says, I will supply all your need according to my riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul thanks the Philippian church 
for sending their financial support. Shoot on back to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Most churches did not send financial support to Paul. You guys know what he had to do because they wouldn't support him financially? He had to go out and make tents. He had to go out and work with his hands, a secular job, in order to pay his bills and make ends meet. I wonder, I wonder how much more ministry could the Apostle Paul have accomplished if he didn't have to make tents? Now, God accomplished so much through Paul, right? How much more could he have accomplished if he didn't have to go out and get a job? And so now, starting in verse 7, he's going to make this strong argument, listen to this, for why God's ministry should be supported by God's people. Look at verse 7. He says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, who plants a vineyard and does not eat its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Very interesting. Here's your next point if you're taking notes. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Others receive their living from their occupation, and so should those who labor in the ministry. It's exactly what verse 7 is saying. Hey, others receive their living from their occupation, why not those who labor in the ministry? Now, I understand if you've got a lazy preacher who golfs Monday through Friday and then Saturday puts a couple hours into his message and preaches on Sunday, don't support that guy. But I don't know any of those guys that are on staff here. And so the Bible is teaching, God's word is teaching to the churches today that those who labor in the ministry are to be supported by God's people. And the three examples he uses, the first example he says, who goes to war at his own expense? Right? Can you imagine if the United States of America sent a young man who joined the army? The young man joins the army. He goes to war. He fights our battles. He protects this country. Can you imagine if the citizens of this country said, um, sorry, dude, you're going to have to get a job and pay your own way. Can you imagine if we would say, uh, sorry, the work you do on base, we're not going to pay for that. You're going to have to go get in your spare time a job off the base. No, we value our troops too much for that. And we're thankful for the service that they provide for our country. In fact, I think everybody in the military ought to get a pay raise for protecting our country. And by the way, not in the notes, but I'm going to take this exit for a little while anyway. We shouldn't allow our military, especially in this day and age, to continue to decrease in strength and in numbers. In any age, we need to be building our ministry. Our, our, our military up and giving these men and women the, the, the wages that they deserve instead of sending your taxpayer dollars to the stupidest things I've ever seen in my life. I read an article yesterday, the 30 stupidest things that the government spends our taxpayer money on. You know what made the list three years ago? They built a, I think it was a $750,000 soccer field in Gitmo so that the inmates could play soccer. 
your taxpayer dollars hard at work. And I could only in the list of 30 get through 15. I couldn't take anymore because I was getting in the flesh. Well, Pastor Mike, are you going to stop paying taxes? No, I understand Romans 13 all too well. I will continue to pay my taxes, but I'm going to vote for somebody who's going to use my taxpayer dollars in wise ways instead of stupid ways. And so who goes to war and pays his own expenses? We don't treat our military like that. So why do we treat our ministers like that is what Paul is saying here. He says in verse 7, who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat its fruit? Can you imagine a farmer clearing out, a, buys a piece of land, clears it out, takes all the rocks out, right? Tills the land, plows it up, plants the vineyard. It's growing. He's pruning the, 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 um, the vines there. And finally harvest comes. The grapes are big and juicy and ripe. Can you imagine if that Vine dresser is reaching out to eat his first grape and somebody comes and slaps his hands and says, "Uh uh-uh, you can't have that. You got to pay for it. Paul says, who does that? He says, third example in verse seven, he says, who tends a flock and does not drink the milk of the flock? Can you imagine a village, right? Telling the local shepherd, um, Sorry, Mr. Shepherd, we know you've been out there in the field watching over your sheep, watching over your goat, your goats, but you know, you're not allowed to drink the milk of the goats. You're not allowed to make cheese from the milk of the sheep. You've got to pay for it, right? Nobody would ever say that. And so the point is that others receive their living from their occupation, and so should those who labor in the ministry, If it's making sense to you, can you say amen so I know you're with me? Look at verse 8. And by the way, I know some of you might be thinking right now, you know, how self-serving for you to be preaching on this. You know why I'm preaching on this? It's where we are in the Bible. And so I'm going to preach this with all my heart, just like I preach any other topic with all my heart as we're going through the Bible. He says now in verse 8, do I say these things as a mere man or does not also the law? Very interesting. Here's a New Testament guy (laughs) writing to a church in the church age, the age of grace. He's going back to the law of Moses to grab a principle we can apply to our churches today. Does not the law say the same also? Verse 9, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it oxen that God is concerned about? Or does he say it all together for our sakes? He says for our sakes. No doubt this is written that he, that's the minister, those in leadership in the church, those on staff, he who plows should plow in hope. And he who threshes in hope should be partaker of this hope. And so what is Paul doing in verse 9? He's quoting the law of Moses. Check it out. Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4 says, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Okay, so in ancient times, 
let's say you owned a wheat field. And so you're there waiting for harvest time. The harvest comes, you're so excited, right? This is provision for my family. So you go out and you, you grab the wheat, you bring it in the sheaves. And then what do you do in ancient times? Well, you got to extract the grain from the hull or the husks, the outer shell. And so you take the sheaves and you put it down on the threshing floor. And then maybe you've seen the pictures, you take your ox and you have your ox walk in circles over the sheaves of wheat. What does that do? The weight of the ox is pressing down on the hull or the husk and it's separating the grain from the outer shell. And then you take your winnowing fan, right? And you blow away the chaff and now you've got grain. Now you've got sustenance for you and your family. But my point here is that as that ox is walking around, that ox is doing hard work. And that ox is going to get hungry. And so sometimes when the ox is walking around, treading on the sheaves, separating the grain from the husks, that ox is going to go down and begin to lick up that grain. And some farmers were so cruel, they saw this, uh uh-uh, and they went and got a muzzle, and they put a muzzle on their ox. And God says in his word, don't do that. The thing is working for you. The thing is providing a service for you. Take care of him. Let him eat. Now, you think the Lord put this principle in the Bible so we could know how to take care of oxen? (laughs) You think that's why it's in there? No, I don't think God wrote that in the word. One commentator said, we know God didn't write that in the word for oxen because oxen can't read. Right? So who's it in there for? In the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, it's for the ministers. It's for the leaders of the church. And if, if, if it's not crystal clear yet for some of you, please look now at verse 11. And by the way, thank you, Paul, for calling all of us in ministry oxes, <laughs> oxen. But look at verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your, what's the next two words? That's interpreted financial support. And so if ministers are providing a service for the church, they're winning the sheep. They're feeding the sheep. Right? They're... um, taking care of the sheep, tending the flock. They're administrating ministry for the sheep, on and on and on and on. Then verse 11 says, hey, if they're providing a spiritual service for you, you should provide them material support. Paul said this to Timothy, let the elders and those who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out, there's that verse again, when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his what? His wages. Okay, the mandate is now crystal clear. And that is because ministers of the church provide a spiritual service for God's people, God's people in turn should provide financial support 
for those ministers. Look at verse 12 now. Little side note, Paul says, if others are partakers of this right over you, this right to receive financial support, he says, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right. In other words, Paul's, Paul's saying, um, in case you're going to misjudge my motives here and think I'm writing all this so you'll send me money, keep your money. You guys see that in verse 12? We have not used this right, but we endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Paul says other people are receiving financial support from you. And, I, and my thought is, man, okay, the Corinthian church, it's a local church, it's like our church. And they're sending out financial support to other ministers, but they're not even supporting their, fi- their founding pastor. And Paul, of all people, should have been receiving their financial support. Why? Paul sowed into their lives this incredible, rich, spiritual truth. And Paul was out there. He was planting churches all around the Roman Empire. But he says, you know, I'm not going to use this right. Because he didn't want his motives to be misunderstood. He didn't want anybody to think he was in the ministry for money. And so he says to this specific local church, I don't want any of you guys, because I know there's a group of detractors in the church of Corinth who are publicly criticizing me, who are questioning whether or not I'm called to be an apostle. And so Corinthian church, you can keep your money. I'm not going to use my right as an apostle to receive financial support from you. You guys can keep, I'd rather die, he's going to say later on, than you to think that I'm in the ministry for the money. By the way, before we continue on to verse 13, don't answer out loud like first service did because there was like a rumble. How many of you guys think televangelists today are in the ministry for money? Still people talking out loud, even though the teacher said, don't do that. Kidding. Honestly, in your heart, you watch these guys, right? I hear... The phrase, sow your seed, more on Christian television than I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Something's wrong with that. Okay? And so finally, I got to the place in my life, and don't be offended because I'm sure some of these stations are great, okay? Uh, But I went through my list and I deleted all the Christian television stations, except for one. I kept the NRB network. I think there's some good guys on there. But here's, here's why I did that. Because when I'm at home and I'm flipping through and I see a guy in a gold chair and I know he owns a mansion and he's asking you, a widow, to sow seed into his ministry, I get in the flesh like that. I don't want to be in the flesh. I want to be in the spirit. So I just deleted all that junk off my television set. And just like there were charlatans, there's just like there are charlatans today who are in the ministry for the money, Living in exquisite mansions. Yes, some of these guys live in huge mansions. They're wearing exquisite clothes. They're driving exquisite cars. And they're always saying this phrase, right? In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, right? Well, one day Jesus is going to stand before them. And they're going to say, Lord, didn't we? All this stuff in your name? And you know what he's going to say? Depart from me, I never knew you. Right? Because they're in the ministry for the money. 
and they're charlatans, and I'm your pastor, and I'm supposed to protect you guys. You guys got to use discernment. Where do you get discernment from? Right here. Right here. And so just like there's charlatans today, there were charlatans in the Apostle Paul's time, and he refused to be grouped with them. And so he goes, hey, if you guys are going to question my motives, keep your money. God will take care of me. Look at verse 13. He's now going back to the argument of why God's ministers and ministry should be supported by God's people. Verse 13, he says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things, okay, that's, if you're new to the Bible, that's the Levites, and they were the Old Testament ministers. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat the things of the, what? The temple. And those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. And so now in verse 13, very interesting. Again, Christians, we know we're not under the law of Moses, right? But Paul goes back to the law of Moses in order to extract a principle, in order to apply that principle to the churches in the New Testament age. And so in verse 13, the Apostle Paul is reminding us that the Levites, the Old Testament ministers, were supported by God's people. Okay, how were they supported? Here's, how, here's what they did. In that agrarian society, they brought in their tithes. The Hebrew word tithe means 10%. It doesn't mean 2%. It doesn't mean 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9%. The reason I say that is because some people give 4% and they say, I'm tithing. You're not tithing. You're giving 4%. Let's just be honest, okay? It's also not 15, 20, or 25%. The word tithe in the Hebrew means 10%. Now, in that agrarian culture back then, here's what they did in the Old Testament. They would give 10% off the top to the Lord and to his work. They tithed off their grain, their fruit, their wine, their oil, the firstborn of their herds, the firstborn of their flocks. And so what did tithing do? Tithing recognized that, God, you're sovereign over all. God, you're my provider. And so hey, imagine if you're in the sandals of an Old Testament person, right? And you got a wheat field and it's harvest time and you're looking out at the wheat field and you're seeing all that wheat and you're thinking, thank you, God. I didn't do that. You did that. You're my provider and I'm so grateful for you. And so Lord, I'm not gonna selfishly keep all that bumper crop for myself. I'm gonna take 10% of the grain off the top and I'm gonna take it down to the temple storehouse and I'm gonna give it to you. Now, guess who lived off the tithes? The Levites, the priests, the Old Testament ministers. Look at what God said about the Levites. Uh, we're gonna put on the screen Numbers 18:21. Behold, I have given the children of Levi all the, what's the word? Tithes in Israel as an inheritance in return for the work which they perform, the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And so again, please now look at verse 13. Paul's extracting an Old Testament principle and now he's applying it 
in the New Testament church. What's the principle? That God's ministers and God's ministry should be supported by God's people. Okay, Old Testament verse 13. Now he's going to apply it to us. Look at verse 14. What's the first two words? Even so. Now, if you have another translation other than the New King James Version, give me your first two words. Shout it out loud. Go ahead. In the same way. Okay, so here's the Old Testament principle in verse 13. And now he says in verse 14, in the same way, the Lord has suggested. Is that what it says? The Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. Black and white, clear as day, God's word applied to the New Testament church. Now, I fully understand that we are not Jews under the old covenant. Fully understand that. And that's why I love John Piper's article. And I want you guys to Google this later on and read the whole essay. It's actually a letter that John Piper wrote to his kids because he wanted his kids to tithe for the rest of their lives. And look at what he says. Concerning verses 13 and 14 there, he says the least that Paul is saying is that those who spend their lives in the service of the word of God should be supported by the rest of the Christians. But since he draws attention to the way it was done in the Old Testament as the model, it seems likely that tithing would have been the early Christian guideline, if not the mandate. Paul takes an Old Testament principle from the law of Moses, and now he applies it to the New Testament church. Why? Because God's ministers and God's ministry should be supported by God's people. I was in a pastor's meeting in Tampa, and I shared this last spring, and I'll share it every time I teach on giving because the Lord spoke um, to my heart. He moved in my heart, better said, in such a strong way. But I'm in a pastor's meeting in Tampa area, and I'm sitting there with 30 or so other pastors, and the speaker is talking about financial support in New Testament ministry. And he starts talking about tithing. And the speaker said this. He said, if every Christian tithed, there would be no need for government welfare. And when he said those words, the Holy Spirit came alive in my heart. The Holy Spirit moved in my heart like, like I rarely feel his presence in my heart, right? Confirming what the man said. Why? Because if every Christian tied, there would be no need for government welfare. That's why. The government should, be, should, not, be ha should not have to take care of the poor. That's the church's job. It's what God's called us to do as we shine our light in the community, right? But here's the problem. Most Christians don't tithe. And so there's limited funds. And so the government's got to step up and do the, the work that the church is supposed to do. I read another article this week, uh, and one guy had, had um, made this um, calculation. He said that if every committed American Christian tithed, Okay, and so he allowed for 
of the committed Christians in America, right, to be going through such financial hardship and struggles and have such financial, financial limitations. He goes, I'll even leave those 10% out. And so if the rest of committed American Christians would tithe, including a handful who give generously to the Lord, if they would tithe, listen to this. He said, committed Christians in America would increase their annual giving by 85.5 billion with a B dollars. What in the world could the church do today with an extra, that's not total, that's extra, with an extra 85.5 billion dollars in America? How many hospitals could be built? How many Christian schools could be built? How many poor people could be taken care of? How many homeless shelters could be set up? How many church planters could be supported? How many missionaries could be supported? But guess what? All that is only happening in a limited way. You know why? The same reason why the Apostle Paul wasn't being supported by the church of Corinth. I bet you when the the people in Corinth got to heaven and they found out that the apostle Paul was in fact an apostle, authentic, and that God used him, him in such a great way. I bet you that those believers in Corinth felt so much regret in heaven that they had not financially supported his ministry. And I believe there's gonna be great regret from this generation of Christians who stand before the judgment seat of Christ someday. And by the way, we're not judged for our sins, but we are judged for our works. We are judged for whether we supported the work of God and what's really important to the Lord. And I believe that many Christians are gonna stand on that day full of regret. And here's why I say that. About 40% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians give nothing. Zippo, nothing. Evangelical Christians, those of us who have the true gospel of faith alone, or by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 40%. You know why? Here's why I'm convinced. I don't believe it's always just a lack of desire. I believe it's because a lot Christians, they're not good stewards or managers of 100% of what God has entrusted to them. In other words, they don't look at the money that they make at work as God's money. They look at it as their money. And don't tell me what to do with my money. Guess what? It's not your money. It's the Lord's. All of it. 100% of it. It's all God's. Hey, Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 100% of it belongs to the Lord. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, 100% of it belongs to the Lord. Why? Because the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's all his. I worked for it. You've heard me say this before. Who gave you the feet to get out of bed to walk to work? Right? Who gave you the mind to think through how to solve problems on your computer? It's the Lord. But here's, here's what so many Christians do. They get their paycheck and they put everything in front of the Lord. 
and they pay their mortgage and their car payments and their boat payment and their school loans and their FPL bill and their groceries and their credit cards and their cable and their clothes and their dinner out and their golfing and their movies. And then if there's a few bucks left over, they may throw those few bucks in the offering plate. Hey, what happened to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness? What happened to honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be um, bursting forth with new wine. The principle from all ages is this. You put God first in every area of your life, including your finances. That's what you do. If you're a lifelong follower of Jesus Christ, that's what you do. Right? How many of you guys are absolutely up to here with boring Christianity? How many of you guys are sick and tired of the fact that you never sense the presence of God? How many of you guys are sick and tired of the fact that you open your Bible and it's like, I, I'm not getting anything from this? Or you pray and it feels like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling and your walk with Christ is dead. You want the Holy Spirit to wake up in your heart? Start putting God first in every area of your life and you watch what God does in your life. Do that. Put him first. I dare you to put him first in every area of your life. And when you do that, you'll stop being a weak, impotent Christian, and you'll start being a potent, strong Christian that actually is being used by God in this world. Ladies and gentlemen, our time is short. We're going to be standing eyeball to eyeball before the Lord. You don't want to have any regrets. You don't want to have regrets in this money. And by the way, God knows my heart. He sees my heart right now, and he sees my motives. And he knows that I'm not preaching this because he knows I'm not in the ministry for money. I don't preach to get paid. I preach because I'm called by the Lord Jesus Christ, whether I get paid or not. All right? So give to the Lord. Honor him. See what God will do in this place if you'll just honor him. But here's what happens. So many Christians, they sit there and they hear this passionate plea. And they live their lives. And there's no victory. There's no blessing. And they're standing before God like this. God, God, why am I not being blessed? God, God, why is all this stuff happening to me? And they've got their hand on their, they think it's theirs, money like a death grip. And the Lord says, why don't you open your hand and give? And then now there's room to put something in. I can't get anything in that. I'll put some into that. If we began to step up, not because we're Jews under the law of Moses, but because we're Christians, and we began to support the ministry like the Jews did in the Old Testament, in this New Testament age, God would open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing more than you could even receive, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And by the way, not just financial blessings. Don't hear me saying, you start tithing, and God's going to make you rich. Okay? That's not this church. God says, I'll promise to supply not all your greed. I promise to supply all your need. He'll take care of your every need. And a lot of those blessings that he pours out are not just material blessings. Most of them, I believe, are spiritual blessings like contentment, 
My wife and I have so much peace, so much contentment. Why? We've been honoring God for years and years and years with the tithe. And we are open to the Holy Spirit above the tithe to give offerings as the Lord leads. And so as the worship team comes up, here's your final, here's some suggested points for you guys. First one, tithe regularly. Trust the Lord in this. You say, am I gross or my net? Whatever you want. I could say, do you want gross blessings or net blessings? But I'm not going to say that, okay? <laughs> Honor the Lord. It's an act of worship. Show him who's got first place in your finances. And you watch what he does. You already heard me say there's three ways you can give at Calvary. You can give securely online. Most of you guys do that. You can give on Sunday morning. And by the way, if you give online during the week and the bucket goes by and you don't have anything to give, you can put in your, your um, giving envelope because you already tithed. You already gave. Lord, I honored you earlier this week. You can give securely online at our website. You can give on Sunday mornings, um, either in the, in the offering or in the tithe boxes in the back, or you can mail in your envelope, however you choose to do it. But I dare you to start honoring God with the tithe. Then give offerings above the tithe as the Holy Spirit leads. Now, in order to do number two, you got to do number three. And I totally understand that for some of you, number three is a curse word. You hate it, you hate it, you hate it. You can't stand sitting down with a budget every month. You'd rather just burn that thing and just live however you want to live. But I want to encourage you, you'll never be able to do number two unless you do number three. And so there's so, much so many tools online, whether it's Dave Ramsey, you can, you can Google Dave Ramsey budget forms, or there's so many other great, great organizations out there that have online budgets. Start living on a budget. Live within your means. That means, number four, you avoid credit cards. Avoid them, avoid them, avoid them. Here's my suggestion. That credit card in your wallet, consider that thing a demon. Cut it up today, throw it away. You say, but I'm earning points for flying the plane. Okay, pay the thing off every month, okay? If you gotta have your points for your plane, make sure you pay it off every, stop paying interest. It's God's money. The money he's entrusted to you is not your money, it's his money. And we will give an account for his money. Avoid credit cards like the plague. And then save for the future. We're all responsible to make sure that we provide for our families later in life. So I want to encourage you. And so for some of you, this will take months and years to be able to start to do this. But plug in. Don't give up. Have something for later on to give to your kids. And then the most important thing of all, trust the Lord in this area of your life. One of the greatest gifts God can give his children is the assurance of their salvation. If you're not sure where you stand with God, we want to help. Visit our website at www.calvarypsl.com and click on Knowing Christ.